We're going to be thinking together this morning about Mark chapter 2. Um, and uh, just a short section, I'm going to read those verses for us from verse 13 of Mark chapter 2 to verse 17. And it would be helpful if you could have that open in front of you, uh, if that's possible, as I read and as we think about it together over the next few minutes. So that's Mark chapter 2, and we'll read verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Well, before we spend some time thinking about those verses together, let me pray for our time. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your written word, the Bible. And as we come to study this part of the Bible together this morning, we ask that you would please grow our appreciation for and love of your Son, the living Word, Jesus Christ. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each of us have different thresholds, don't we, for deciding whether or not we should seek medical help. On one end of the spectrum is the person who doesn't really need to go to hospital, but decides to go anyway. One English health board published a list of examples of people at that end of the spectrum recently. Actually, the list included one person who had attended A&E because they had broken a false nail, and uh, someone else who went to hospital because they had the hiccups and were feeling a bit fed up. And we've all been there, I guess, having hiccups, I mean, not going to hospital about it. But perhaps more serious is the other end of the spectrum, the reluctant end of the spectrum. People who really ought to seek out some kind of medical intervention, who have plenty of evidence available to them suggesting that there might be something wrong, but still refuse to get help. And they might refuse to get help for quite a number of different reasons, perhaps because they're in denial. They won't entertain the possibility that there could be something wrong, so they're trying to ignore the symptoms, hoping they go away themselves. Or perhaps not because of denial, but because of despair. Maybe they're pretty sure that their symptoms indicate that something's very wrong indeed, but they don't think that a doctor or a medical professional could do anything to alleviate them anyway, so why bother going to the trouble of wasting everyone's time? 
Well, in the passage we're going to be thinking about together this morning, Jesus is going to address both of those kinds of rationale. A reluctance to seek intervention because of a denial that there's a problem, or because of despair that the problem is just too serious. Only in Mark 2, that external intervention isn't required to deal with physical sickness, but, says Jesus, with spiritual sickness. And yet, just as a reluctance to go to the doctor with physical sickness can be a very dangerous thing, a reluctance to seek help for our spiritual sickness can be even more deadly. Let's think about that under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Samuel. Thank you. Jesus came for the spiritually sick, no matter how sick we are. Now, if if you've been here uh, over the past few Sunday mornings, you might have noticed as we read these few verses that they pick up on some similar ideas to some that we've already seen, some we've already covered in Mark's account. So just read with me again, chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. As we begin, Jesus is teaching a crowd. And and that's very much on brand with what we've seen of Jesus so far. It's what we saw a couple of Sundays ago, isn't it? We saw in chapter 1 that whilst Jesus was performing extraordinary miracles, well, quite surprisingly, he made preaching his priority. And as we move on into verse 14, we find ourselves in familiar territory. Yet again, verse 14, and as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And again, that sounds a lot like the passage we thought about in chapter 1, where if you remember, Jesus called four fishermen to come and follow him. And they all did just that. But... Whilst there are some familiar ideas, some familiar themes in this little unit, well, in some ways, it's the differences with what has come before that give us a sense of why Mark tells us about this particular incident right at this point in his account. What do I mean? Well, just look again at verse 14. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me the person jesus calls to follow him this time a man called levi isn't casting nets into the water as the fishermen were doing in chapter one no levi's sitting at the tax booth because levi is a tax collector and he isn't the only one we find keeping company with jesus just look on to verse 16 And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I wonder if you can see the new idea that's being highlighted in Mark chapter 2. It isn't another detail about Jesus' identity, or yet more proof of his authority even. No, we are being shown the kind of person Jesus came for. That Jesus came for tax collectors and sinners. And it is just possible we might miss the shock of quite how radical that really is. 
Certain professions or industries can carry a bit of a stigma, can't they? As if working in a particular job or working in a particular industry automatically says something about you as a person. Around 10 to 15 years ago, for example, being a banker had a particular stigma attached to it. And that was partly because we were in the middle of a global recession that a lot of people pinned on bankers having been a bit greedy at that time. Well, in first century Israel, there was one profession above most others that carried a stigma that was thought to tell you everything you needed to know about the people who did it. And it was tax collecting. A huge swathe of the known world was ruled by the Roman Empire. And tax collectors were generally local people who were employed by the Romans to collect taxes in their own provinces. And that fact alone was bad enough because the Romans were were invaders. They were unwelcome occupiers. And so tax collectors were effectively seen as being their minions. They were Roman collaborators, if you like, fraternizing with the enemy. But their relationship to the Romans wasn't the only problem people had with tax collectors. No, the way they went about doing their job made things even worse. Because the tax system was set up as being a kind of franchise. So as long as a tax collector collected enough money to meet targets set by the Roman authorities, well, they could collect as much as they wanted on top of that figure. And so tax collectors were notorious for, for price gouging, for squeezing as much as they could out of people. And so you see, the category we should have in mind when we read these words, tax collector, in Mark chapter 2, isn't anything like an employee of His Majesty's revenue and customs. No, we're neither to the right kind of territory with the idea of a loan shark, perhaps a people trafficker. They were traitors. They were exploitative, self-serving traitors, people who profited from other people's misery. These guys were seriously hated. And you don't just need to take my word for that, actually. We get a sense of it in Mark chapter 2. Just notice that the scribes, and that even Mark himself, refer to tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors had such a bad reputation that whilst all other kinds of sinners were kind of clumped together as an amorphous mass, well, tax collectors are being specifically name-checked, aren't they? And the reason we need to clock that is that that is the big bombshell in verses 13 to 17 of Mark chapter 2. What Mark wants us to see is that Jesus came even for tax collectors. And that does start to take us further in our understanding of God's king, of King Jesus, and his purpose here on earth, doesn't it? We saw last week, if you were here, that, that Jesus has extraordinary authority Authority even to forgive people's sins, people's rebellion against God and his right rule over our lives. But until now, we didn't know exactly how far that forgiveness would go. We didn't know a huge amount, for example, about the paralytic man who Jesus forgave last week. We knew that he was helpless, but we didn't know much more about him than that. But you see, with Levi... Well, his profession is meant to tell us all we need to know about him. He's the lowest of the low. And yet even, even 
the people who we might expect to be the furthest from the kingdom of God aren't beyond Jesus' reach. And I wonder what you make of that this morning. A friend of mine is the pastor of a church on a scheme, a housing scheme. And uh, quite a number of folks he spends time with regularly have have social and addiction problems, quite uh, seriously so. And each time I've heard him speaking about it, it struck me about by how wonderful it is that, that people with all sorts of different issues in their lives are coming to Jesus. People who are often at the fringes of society, people who clearly have no means to help themselves, humanly speaking. And I'll be honest and say that I've often thought that's the kind of category we should be thinking of when it comes to someone like Levi. He's, he's an example of the kind of underdog, you know, the outcast who Jesus welcomes in. But you see, there's a sense in which the story of Levi might not be quite so heartwarming as that. If anything, it should, I think, make us pretty uncomfortable. Because Levi wasn't the equivalent of, of an addict, of perhaps a bit of an underdog who's battling their demons when Jesus steps in to help them. Jesus is the equivalent of a dealer. Sorry, Levi was the equivalent of a dealer. He was someone who'd profited from other people's misery, who in all likelihood had inflicted some of that misery himself. And yes, he might be hated by the people in his local area, but he had kind of money and influence to to, to soften that blow. And you see, the scandal of Mark chapter 2 is that Jesus came even for him. And that is quite uncomfortable, isn't it? It stretches our understanding of quite how far the grace of God actually goes, quite how good This good news really is. Levi is proof that no matter how far you have been from God, no matter how far you are from him now, Jesus came for you too. And yet, it's uh, quite possible that all the while I've been speaking, you've been kind of quietly caveating everything I've been saying in your head. The caveat has gone something like this. That's all very well and good, Johnny. The fact of God extending mercy towards people sounds amazing, but you can't really say that about me because you don't know. You don't know me. Not the real me, anyway. You don't know what I struggle with or how long I've struggled with it for. You don't know how dark my thoughts can get. You don't know how horrible I've behaved or the people that I've hurt. You don't know the lust that I've felt. You don't know how angry I can get. You don't know the hatred that I feel. Johnny, you just don't know. And do you know what? You're absolutely right. I don't. But you see, God does. We might be tempted to think that the best we can hope for is that God will turn a blind eye on our behaviors. Because if he knew what I was really like, then he couldn't possibly accept me. But can you not see Levi blowing that idea to pieces? When it comes to the Christian faith, there is no blind eye turned on anything you've done or thought or said. There are no rose-tinted glasses on how you've behaved. God looks you square in the face of your weakness, of your failure, of your rebellion against him, your sin. And he says, I came for you. Not I came for you as you will be in ten years' time. 
or I came for the you, you will be when you finally get your act together. Just, I came for you. Spiritually sick as you are. And if you want proof of that, if you want proof of the extent of his grace, then look at the cross. The cross is a public declaration of the seriousness of our situation. That on our own, we deserve nothing but God's judgment. We're in worse trouble than we even realize. And yet at the same time, the cross is the public declaration that he sent his king, his son, for you. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you feel that you've gone too far, there's just no way you could love someone with a past like yours or with a present like yours. Let me tell you in love, you're wrong. Because he has. And because he does. And because he's shown that he does. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so let me encourage you, if you know that you're sick this morning, spiritually sick, that you've been dishonoring God by how you've been living, but you've convinced yourself, like a reluctant patient, that you've just gone too far for his help, please don't believe it. Turn to him. Ask for the healing of the doctor, for his forgiveness, and trust in that cross alone for that forgiveness, because he came for sick people, spiritually sick people like you and like me. Now, I hope you can see how that addresses one of those reasons we might have for being reluctant to to seek that external intervention, that help of the doctor, because we think we're too far gone. But that isn't just a diagnosis that we make of ourselves. It's also a diagnosis we can make of other people too. When I was a student, there were a few of us from the Christian Union in Aberdeen who were involved in the prison chaplaincy work at Craig Inch's prison, which wasn't at the time too far from here. It's closed now, but it wasn't too far from here. We'd go into Craig Inch's prison on a Friday afternoon and we'd play football with some of the guys in prison. And then each week, one of us would share a short thought or an idea about the Christian faith with the guys we'd just been playing with. And I remember that there was one guy in particular who was in for it for quite a while. He was in for attempted murder. And over time, I can remember quietly in in my mind kind of dismissing the impact that we could possibly have on this guy. Because he'd done some really dreadful things, and he told us that. And to be honest, he seemed pretty kind of ambivalent, pretty kind of hardened to what we were telling him. Until one week, he turned up on a Friday afternoon, and he asked us if he could give the talk that week. And to be honest, that put us in a tricky spot, because on the one hand, we didn't want to waste the chance to speak to people about Jesus. But on the other hand, he was a really hard guy, and we were about to play five-a-side football against him. But he explained that he'd just come to faith in Jesus that week. That God had done an extraordinary work in his life through the work of the prison chaplain. And he wanted to tell the other guys about it. Now we've seen, haven't we, in the first few scenes in Mark's gospel. That that preaching, that telling people the good news of Jesus was Jesus' priority. And that if we follow him, well, we're called to make it our priority too. And though you might not be asked to share your faith with convicted criminals on a regular basis... I wonder if, just like me, you've ever had a sense that someone is just too far gone for Jesus. Perhaps your colleague whose life just seems too complicated. 
or a family member whose past is, is far too messy, you don't even know where you would start. Or your course mate who just isn't the kind of person Jesus really came to deal with. Well, Levi shows us again in love that we're wrong. Because Jesus came for sick people, for people who seem to be as far away from the kingdom of God as they could possibly be. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, let me encourage you to tell them about him. No matter how messy and complicated and unlikely as it might seem, because Jesus came for sick people, no matter how sick we are. But that isn't the only reason we might have for refusing to seek medical help, is it? Despair, thinking that we've too far gone to be curable. We can also be reluctant to ask for help because, well, frankly, we don't think we need it. We're in denial. And whilst Levi is proof that no one is too sick for Jesus, Mark also wants us to clock that no one is too well to need him either. And we'll see that under our final heading this morning. Jesus didn't come for people who think they're well because none of us are. Now, it's fair to say that not everyone is happy with the extent of Jesus' forgiveness in Mark chapter 2. I wonder if you spotted that. Just read with me again verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, these scribes are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they're a bit unhappy about Jesus associating with some pretty dodgy-seeming characters. And before we caricature them, and we kind of treat them as, as pantomime baddies, there is a sense in which their surprise is understandable. You might have noticed that the, the new king, King Charles, was in Aberdeen this week. He was at a reception at the townhouse. And it would have been a surprise if, if rather than going to the townhouse, well, he'd spent his time in Aberdeen having dinner with a notorious loan shark or a drug kingpin and some of his pals. He'd be forgiven for thinking that seems a bit out of place for a king. And that's a bit like what's going on in Mark chapter 2. Because in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has been introduced to the world. He's announced himself to the world as God's rescuing king. And yet here we find him sitting around a dinner table with a group of what seem to be ne'er-do-wells. And so in one sense, it's understandable that that would be a surprise. But the thing is, you wouldn't just be surprised if King Charles was photographed keeping dodgy company. It would also be a bit of a surprise if you'd been settling down to some dinner on Wednesday evening and your doorbell had gone and Charles had popped round to yours for some spaghetti bolognese. See, it's an unexpected thing that the king would have time to nip over to have dinner with anyone, isn't it? And yet the implication in what the scribes say in Mark chapter 2 is that that second scenario... Well, it wouldn't really have struck them as being much of a surprise at all. I mean, yes, it's surprising that he'd eat with, with certain other types of people, but of course the king would have time for tea with folks like us. Or in other words, they didn't just think of people like Levi as being spiritual outsiders. They thought of themselves as being spiritual insiders, spiritually well. And that makes the punchline of this unit quite so devastating. 
verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, he isn't saying here that there are some people who don't need him, who are actually spiritually well. No, he's flagging the fact that there are people who think they don't need him. And yet who are, in fact, in denial about their own symptoms, about their sickness. Perhaps because they think they have the resources to cure themselves. Perhaps because they don't think they need curing at all. And Jesus is saying that he didn't come for people who think they're well, because no one is. Now, what does all of that have to do with us? Well, perhaps you're someone who would consider yourself to be a Christian. You may well have been for quite some time. And yet what we see in the scribes might not be all that far from our heart set, our mindset towards God. Because by all of our own metrics, well, we're spiritually well. By how often we go to church, or how much we give to church, how often we take communion, how regularly we read the Bible, how morally upright we are, especially compared to the people we live and work among. But it's worth saying that that those are good disciplines in themselves. But if those are the grounds of your spiritual security... Well, Jesus says you're in danger. Because by ourselves, each of us are spiritually sick. And the implication is that we can't cure ourselves. Now, that sickness might not look quite as obvious in everyone as it did with Levi. But later in Mark's account, Jesus will tell us that the kind of sickness we all suffer from is a heart disease. He says that it is from within a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, says Jesus. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And you see, the reason our situation might be quite so dangerous as it is, is that in our self-righteousness, thinking that we don't need a cure, or that we're able to cure ourselves, well, we may well be ignoring all of those symptoms. Symptoms that so clearly show we are spiritually sick. And it's important to say we can do that whether we're religious or not. I came across an example of this recently, actually. It happened to a church in another part of Scotland. The pastor of the church was giving a talk, and he described humanity as a whole as being sin-sick. He got the phrase from Mark chapter 2, I think. Uh, and some folks uh, from the area in which the church was placed got hold of a recording of the talk and, and listened to it and, uh, and were outraged that he would say that about people like them. And the pushback was extraordinary. In social media, in in print media, they even put pressure on the local authority to stop the church from meeting. What was behind that pushback? Well, it was exactly this mindset. We don't need a doctor. And how dare you tell us that we do? We're quite well on our own, thank you very much. 
But you see, whether our brand of self-righteousness is a religious one or a secular one, Jesus says, well, each of us are spiritually sick. And there's nothing in ourselves we can do to fix that. And you see, that's why it is such good news, the Christian faith. Because the doctor can. Jesus has come as the healing, rescuing king. And so all he would have each of us do this morning is to turn to him as a patient in need of treatment, a sinner in need of forgiveness. And trust in his cross alone for that forgiveness. And so we might rejoice because this king, the doctor, has come and has come for sin-sick people. People like you and me. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's thank him and praise him for that wonderful good news now. Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came as a doctor for the sick as a forgiver of those who have rebelled against you. And we thank you and praise you for that good news because each of us are sick. Each of us are in need of your forgiveness. And so we ask this morning, very simply, that you would impress upon each of us just how amazing that grace really is. That our need was great. And you met it perfectly. And for those of us who have trusted in you, we ask, Lord, that you would please help us to grasp that not only for our own soul's sakes, but in order that we might go forth and tell. Tell to even the people who to us might seem the furthest away from you. Trusting that you are the divine physician and that you have come for spiritually sick people, no matter how sick we might be. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of that wonderful doctor, that rescuer, that King Jesus. Amen.